The year was 2008, and I was driving down some old highway road in the middle of the American desert. No rest stops seemingly anywhere in sight. Nothing but the brown landscape of the desert. And as I'm driving down this road, I see a bus that has broken down. And on the side of the road, I, I pull over. This seems like a dangerous situation for someone to be broken down in the middle of this desert. I pull up to this bus and I see on the side of this bus the words written, Straight Talk Express. This was the tour bus of John McCain. And in the year 2008, John McCain was running to be president of the United States. So I stop, I get out of my vehicle, and only Senator McCain is standing there, which I found to be weird. Where's everybody else? Does he not have a bus driver? Only Senator McCain is standing there, and I go up and ask him, you know, Senator McCain, you guys are having bus trouble. Um, can I give you a ride somewhere? It seems to be dangerous to be out here all alone. And he said, no, 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 Sarah's coming to get me. She's going to pick me up and she's going to take me where I need to go. And I said, well, okay, well, Senator McCain, is it all right if I just kind of wait with you here to make sure that happens? He says, sure. So we wait and we wait. And then out of nowhere, I notice on the other side of the road is a rest stop. And uh, outside of this rest stop is an old payphone. So I go, well, Senator McCain, do you want to call your friend Sarah and see if she can come and, and get you. Is she on her way? And he goes over across the street, picks up this payphone, calls her. Ring, ring, ring. No one picks up on the other line. I said to him, Senator McCain, are you, were you able to get through? Were you able to connect with your friend Sarah? No, 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 but she'll be here. She'll pick me up and she'll take me where I need to go. So we wait, and we wait, and we wait. She never shows up, and I wake up. This was one of many peculiar, symbolic, prophetic dreams I had back in 2008. John McCain again was running for president, and he had just announced that his vice presidential running mate was going to be a governor from Alaska named Sarah Palin. Initially, the reports were that this boost to have the, po the possibility of the first female vice president may propel Senator McCain into the White House. He was running against Barack Obama, the uh, young senator from the state of, of Illinois. And uh, I remember getting emails at the time from people I was deeply in the charismatic movement and people that considered themselves to be prophets were saying things like they were getting messages from God that God was going to put in the White House a Deborah and that the Sarah Palin was going to be that Deborah figure and they were all but guaranteeing, guaranteeing that John McCain was going to make his way into the White House as the next president of the United States. But I knew from my dream that that wasn't going to happen. 
I knew from what had happened in my dream that something was going to go wrong and that John McCain wasn't going to reach his intended destination, that the Straight Talk Express, this bus, wasn't going to lead him to Washington, D.C. I had this intuitive feeling because I had had experiences in the past with dreams, experiences with what I called prophetic dreams, dreams about things that I should have no business knowing about, dreams about people's situations, dreams even about future events that came to pass. And this seemed like it was one of those dreams. Sometimes it was hard to discern when I was younger, the difference between those dreams and the the dreams that came when I had too much pizza right before bed. But I knew this was one of them and it was just going to be a matter of time before the symbolic meaning of the dream unfolded in real life. And it didn't take long before that happened. Not not long after my dream, Sarah Palin had her rather infamous interview with Katie Couric, which did not paint her in the most positive light and did not portray her as being someone fit for government, uh, fit to be the vice president of the United States. And opinion polls took a radical downturn. And as we know from the rest of the story, John McCain wasn't elected to be the president of the United States, and in fact, Barack Obama was. I started thinking about that dream again and other dreams that I've had over the course of my life recently. Just the other day when I was driving my kids to school and my son Justice was telling me, Dad, I had the strangest dream last night. I I dreamt that there were four apples in front of me. And the first apple was covered in vines and that it had been pierced by one spear. And the second apple was also covered in vines and that apple had been pierced by two spears. And then the third apple was covered in vines and was pierced by three spears. And the final apple was perfect. It was the most beautiful apple I'd ever seen. And there was nothing wrong with it. That one wasn't pierced by spears. What do you think that means, Dad? And it got me thinking, wondering whether or not perhaps my son has been blessed or cursed in some way with the same sort of experience in dreams that I've experienced throughout much of my life. And maybe some of you have as well. Experiences where dreams have been a window into another world. I don't know what to make of my son's dream. We're still processing that one. Maybe it was just something he ate the night before, but maybe it was a symbolic picture into something else. In today's episode, we're going to have some fun here and explore dreams, prophetic dreams, and the very nature of what consciousness is all about. I want to begin this exploration of today's episode by looking at some of the biblical examples of prophetic dreams. Throughout the scriptures, there's actually 21 dreams recorded in the Bible, and I want to make sure that I differentiate between what the Bible portrays as actual dreams where someone is in a state of sleep and other experiences which we might call visions, which is almost like dreaming awake. 
There are many, many visions uh, recorded throughout the scriptures. But I'm uh, the number that I've quoted to you guys that is telling you that there are 21 dreams are specifically dreams. People in what's been clearly communicated in the stories, states of sleep where they are experiencing these dreams. So these are these are very different than say what John the Revelator gets in the book of Revelation, or for example, what the prophet Isaiah, what's recorded about the prophet Isaiah's vision of heaven in Isaiah chapter six, for example. There are 21 dreams recorded in the Bible, and I want to explore some of them. We're not going to go through all of them in today's episode, but I, I want to explore at least a few of them, some of the significant ones, the, the things that really stand out to me. The first dream reported in the Bible happens in Genesis 20. And in Genesis 20, King Abimelech is warned to not sleep with Sarah. Sarah if you remember the story, Sarah is Abraham's wife, but Abraham had lied to King Abimelech and told, in a sense, to protect himself. He lies and says that Sarah wasn't his wife, but actually his sister. And this this king is warned in a dream by God that, no, don't sleep with her. <laughs> that's not Abraham's wife, or that's not Abraham's sister. This is actually a married woman. This is uh, Abraham's wife. So that's the first instance of a prophetic dream recorded in scripture. The next one, and I'm not, again, I'm not going to go through all of them, the scriptures, but the next one that is reported happens in Genesis 28. And this is one of the more famous ones. This is, this is the story of Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder. And in Genesis 28, Jacob, after his tumultuous uh, situation, you know, deceiving his father to get the birthright, is out in the wilderness, and he lays down to take some rest to go to sleep. And in he puts his. You know, this is funny enough, I always found it funny that uh, the story specifically mentions in Genesis twenty-eight that he grabs a rock for a pillow, which just can't be the most comfortable thing to sleep on. And as Jacob sleeps, he sees angels in this dream. He, there's this uh, this dream where angels are ascending and descending down a ladder between heaven and earth. And I, I want to come back to that because that could be, I wonder, perhaps a maybe an insight into what can happen in our dream state that makes people more aware of God's voice. Perhaps it's a way that God has designed to communicate with humanity. So in this dream, again, Jacob sees this ladder descending between earth and heaven, and angels are going not just down, but they're going back and forth, up and down. And angels uh, throughout the scriptures uh, serve as messengers. They are malak. They are messengers that communicate God's message to human agents. So it's an interesting picture, right? Perhaps perhaps maybe this is a in this is a larger picture of what happens in dreams. But I want to press pause on that. We'll come back to maybe that possibility towards the end of the podcast. But again, we've got that scene and Jacob in that scene after, you know, awaking from his dream, God tells him promises the, him the blessing of that the land and essentially affirms the blessing God had given Abraham back in Genesis 12, that God was going to bless his descendants, and those descendants were going to be a blessing 
to the nations. Fast forwarding, I want to jump ahead. We're still still in Genesis to, to me, one of the more fascinating series of dreams, and that's attached to the story of Joseph. Again, if you've grown up in the church or spent any time in Sunday school, you're probably familiar with the story of Joseph's life, or maybe you saw the production of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph has been given this ability from a very young age to have dreams, to be able to interpret dreams. We see this very early on, Genesis 37, when Joseph was still a young man, that Joseph has this dream of uh, sheaths of, of grain that are standing straight up, and there are 11 that bow before one other sheath or I should say sheaf, not sheath. And uh, Joseph interprets this dream, and he interprets it correctly, that this is a symbol that he has, that his 11 other brothers will one day bow before him, which in that culture is, is a pretty radical thing to presume. He is the youngest brother, or he is one of the younger brothers, and in that culture, again, usually the oldest, as we saw with the story of Jacob, the oldest son gets the birthright from their father, and uh, they are blessed. And there's a very, very um, age-related hierarchical structure that's built into these ancient Near Eastern cultures. And so this is obviously, as we know from the rest of the story, this is obviously really upsetting to Joseph's brothers. That's not the only dream that Joseph has that ticks off his brothers, right? He gets another dream where the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to Joseph. So, you know, as a young man, Joseph sharing this story, obviously, to to his brothers who are hearing this, seems to have a massive ego problem. And of course, hopefully you know the rest of the story. They put him in his place by throwing him in a pit and having him... Instead of killing him, they I guess they show mercy to him in some weird sense, and they instead sell him off into slavery. And so we progress a little bit further down into in, in Joseph's story, into Genesis 40. And Joseph's ability and his special connection to dreams plays another important role in his life again. So at this point, Joseph is now in prison. He's been wrongly and falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife in this story. When Potiphar, he was sold into slavery and ends, in, ends up in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife uh, attempts to seduce him. He resists, and in, she is offended by the slave uh, refusing her sexual advances and then accuses him of raping him. And, of course, he is sent, sent into prison because of that. And while in prison, right, he's got a, uh, a couple of buddies there in prison with him. There's this cupbearer and there's this baker who have somehow also made their way into prison. And they've been getting dreams as well. And they come and they bring these dreams to Joseph, and Joseph not only has the ability to dream, but he has the ability to interpret dreams. This prophetic dream capability, but they seem to lack the ability to make sense of it. So they come to Joseph, and Joseph gives some good news and some bad news. The good news 
is delivered to the cupbearer. The cupbearer, and again, in this you can find this in Genesis 40, and I'll read it here from verse 9. The chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness, mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of prison. All right, so that's the good news delivered to the cupbearer. You're going to find favor with the Pharaoh again. Don't worry, man. You're going to get out of prison. Just remember me. Remember the guy that gave you this positive interpretation of your dream. And uh, think of me when you get back to your 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 position, your place as the king's cupbearer. Now, the bad news Joseph has to deliver to the chief baker. And this starts in verse 16. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread, and the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Okay. Bad news. Bad news for the baker. The chief baker did not get the sort of dream that he was hoping for, especially, I imagine, after he heard the news that uh, Joseph delivered to the cupbearer. He was thinking, oh, sweet. Well, if he's getting a dream and I'm getting a dream, then perhaps uh, this is going to be good news for me. Quite the opposite. So, sorry, man. The Pharaoh is going to impale you. And this is what actually, as the story goes, this is what comes to pass. The third day comes. It's Pharaoh's birthday. He has a feast. He takes the cupbearer and the chief baker out of pri- uh, out of prison, brings him into his presence in the presence of the, all the other officials. Verse 21 says he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he had once again put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. And then finally, and in the sort of climactic, um, climactic scene or climactic moment of Joseph's life, where you could argue the, probably the most climactic moment is when Joseph's brothers do, in fact, bow, come back, and they bow before him. But there was something that led to that moment, right? As you remember in that story, Joseph, the cupbearer, does remember Joseph in prison as the Pharaoh is having these disturbing dreams. Again, dreams in which he is somehow getting the future communicated to him. He's not aware that it's going to be the future, but it's certainly he's getting communication about things that are, he just couldn't, the contents of his brain could not alone have access to. Um, These are things about future events and the possibility of future things that he hasn't understood, but he's getting these images. They're clearly disturbing him to the point where he he doesn't know what to do. And the cupbearer remembers 
Joseph and his aid to him in prison. He tells the Pharaoh, right, Pharaoh, there was this guy in prison, and he interpreted my dream, and he was spot on. You should bring him in. So brings Joseph in, right, and tells Joseph the dream, says, hey, can you interpret this dream for me? And Joseph, in like humility, goes, well, I can't, but God can. And so he tells him the dream. And in this actually two dreams, right? In in the first dream, there are seven fat cows who have come from the Nile to graze, and then there are seven thin cows which come and devour the fat cows. And in the second dream, Pharaoh Pharaoh has uh, a dream of seven well, healthy-looking ears of grain growing on a single stalk, But then out of nowhere comes these seven thin ears of grain, and they swallow up the the well-fed, the plump ears of grain. And Joseph is able to then tell the Pharaoh, interpret the dream with prophetic insight, and tells him, hey, Pharaoh, this is what's going on. Both dreams signify that Egypt is going to experience famine. Egypt is about to head into a year, a period of seven years of famine. But before that, there's going to be seven years of plenty. So here's what you need to do. You better stock up in these seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine. And as hopefully you know that as the rest of the story goes, Pharaoh goes, whoa, this guy's got some insight into stuff. God is speaking to him. And again, this is probably not even a God that... Pharaoh would have recognized the God of Joseph. But this guy's get this guy's got wisdom and it's coming from somewhere. So we're going to essentially make him a vizier, a second in command to me. And Joseph is able to help Egypt prepare for the famine by in wisdom, uh, storing up during the seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine. It's an incredible story, right? And you guys know the end of the story. Joseph's brothers do bow before him. The 11 uh, brothers do end up bowing before him, which fulfills the dreams of his teenage years, the the dreams of his youth. So crazy, crazy prophetic dreams going on. Um, There's some other really interesting ones in the Old Testament I'll just briefly mention. And there's a wonderful infographic I found online. I'll I'll put it in the link in my description, which just gives some great pictures to each one of these these scenes and succinctly breaks them down. Uh, There's this one I had forgotten until I started doing some research and reading up and prepping for this episode. Uh, The scene in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 7, where uh, this is uh, the story in Gideon's life, where this... uh, Gideon, you know, get get this gets this dream of bread that a piece of bread that essentially rolls into the Midianites' camp, knocks over the tents, and foreshadows for Gideon that Gideon and the armies, uh, the army of Israel, is going to be victorious in battle over the Midianites. Which I just thought, man, what a weird picture, bread turning over the tents. We also have in Daniel, there's some extensive stuff in the book of Daniel, some uh, series of dreams that happens in the book of Daniel that involves, uh, instead of a pharaoh in this time, Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe you remember these. This one, first one's in Daniel 2. 
in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a great statue, and it's made of all these different materials, which symbolize these different empires, and then it gets crushed by a stone, which the announcement, <laughs> that's not good news for Nebuchadnezzar, is that, you know, the kingdoms of the earth uh, and the the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar is going to be crushed by the rule and reign of God. Daniel 4, just two chapters later, Nebuchadnezzar gets another dream, a dream of a massive tree that's hacked down to the earth, cut down, and again, bad news for Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel's able to interpret and explain bad news, Nebuchadnezzar, but, you know, this picture is, um, is a picture of what's going to come to you. You're going to be chopped down low to the earth. You're going to be made foolish. And Nebuchadnezzar endures not long after that seven years of insanity where he is like totally loses his mind and goes insane and eats like a beast out in the wilderness. Just crazy stuff. Daniel 7, Daniel's got this picture of four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and this mysterious beast with ten horns. And they are judged by God, and this one called the Son of Man is given dominion over uh, over the earth. And uh, so there's some crazy stuff in, in Daniel, too, as well. But I want to jump ahead because there's some interesting New Testament cases, too, where another Joseph in the book of Matthew, Joseph is the dreamer once again, but this is Joseph the carpenter, the father of Jesus, the non-biological father of Jesus, who plays an important role early on in Matthew's story and then, as you know, like disappears off the scene. It's kind of strange what happened to Joseph. We, we don't really know. So the first instance, Matthew 1, uh, Joseph is visited by an angel in a dream. So this is not just a vision. It's clearly um, communicated as a dream in Matthew 1. And the angel warns Matthew, tells Matthew, I'm sorry, the angel, this is in Matthew, tells Joseph, hey, Joseph, you know, your fiance, Mary, um, yes, she's pregnant. You might be concerned about that because you didn't have anything to do with that, but don't divorce her. Her child is the Messiah. So that's Joseph's first dream. His next few dreams happen in Matthew chapter 2. Um, he is, uh, told that, uh, he's told that he can actually, he needs to go to Egypt, uh, to escape Herod before Herod slaughters all the male babies. And then he's actually told again in a dream by an angel when he can go back to Israel after Herod dies. But there's even wrapped up in that story is a communication that happens in a dream, to someone else that wasn't Joseph, there's actually, God communicates in a dream to the Magi, those Persian astrologers that were coming to find this promised king, this promised Messiah. And God even warns these Magi, who again, you know, obviously they're not Christians. Christians didn't exist yet. This is, you know, right before the birth of of Christ and the church has not been birthed yet, so Christianity isn't a thing. But we could say, these magi are not even, you know, the people of the covenant. These magi are magicians. They are Eastern 
more than likely Persian astrologers, and God communicates to them in a dream, warning them to not go back to Herod because, you know, Herod's this evil dude, and uh, Herod is is hell-bent on stopping this promised Messiah, this promised king of the Jews from being born. So there's some really interesting dreams in um, in, in the New Testament as well. And the final one I, I want to highlight here from the Bible is in Matt is still in Matthew's gospel. This uh, we're in Matthew 27. There's again this Passion Week and Pontius Pilate's wife, again, someone that was not someone that was uh what we would say a person of the covenant. This was not, obviously, again, not a Christian. She was not a follower of Jesus, um, wasn't even a Jew. Pontius Pilate's wife has this nightmare about Jesus and says, warns her husband, Pontius Pilate, this Jesus guy is innocent and you don't want anything to do with him. So just another really interesting example of prophetic dreams coming to people that you would you would say in some instances might make some sense. They are, they are people that are part of this sort of covenant redemptive arc of the story. They have, you might say, a, a relationship with the true God. But then other instances in the Bible of these prophetic insights coming to kings and pharaohs and even to Pontius Pilate's wife that point to this unique ability, or we might say unique function of dreams to somehow facilitate communication from God. All right, so that was a you know brief survey of biblical survey of dreams that are recorded in the scriptures. But I want to take some time to talk a bit about the science of dreams, which is a very, very new phenomenon in human history. It's only been of really the last 40 or 50 years where we've been able to really empirically and scientifically study dreams and what's happening in the mechanical processes of someone's brain. But even before that, there have been psychologists that have been exploring what perhaps the science, the scientific meaning of dreams are and the scientific importance of dreams. And some of this is now in hindsight maybe treated a little bit like pseudoscience, and some of it has been perhaps affirmed by the more empirical research. I want to go back to Freud and the Sigmund Freud. Um, there's really two... There's, there's, there's two significant pillars in modern psychology in the West, two um, major contributors. There are certainly others, but you, most people will usually point to the work of Sigmund Freud or the, to the work of Carl Jung. Uh, the Freudian theory of dreams, the, you know, Freud was the predecessor to Jung. The Freudian, three, Freudian theory of dreams, according to Freud, dreams were, dreams are filled with these symbolic images and ideas that signify deep emotions or deep wishes or fantasies that we have. For for Freud, especially in his early years, dreams usually symbolized something about your childhood or were connected to some sort of 
deep, you know, for Freud, so much of everything seemed to be connected to some deep sexual desire. And much of the Freudian view has fallen out of favor um, as more modern scientific research has happened, but some of it has been potentially affirmed. Uh, for Jung, Carl Jung, the Jung proposed that humans have this deep evolutionary history passed on to us, and it's stored in a sort of collective unconscious mind. It's it's a, a state of um, state of consciousness that transcends localized brains. It becomes this collective story that's deeply stored. We do have access uh, to it in our minds, but it's not something that has originated solely in our own minds. It's been the process of a shared human history. And even for some people, again, like, uh, you know, a major proponent of Young today, Jordan Peterson, there are even, we, we have stored in this collective unconscious mind the, the memories of animals and every sort of evolutionary predecessor to us. So emerging from this collective unconscious are these ancient patterns and symbols or archetypes for Jung. Jung saw these sorts of monumental archetypal events in people's lives, like their birth, moving away from your parents, marriage, etc., that everybody's lives had these significant archetypal events. These are the major events that happen in your life. And that... The, we have these reoccurring archetypal symbols that we not only see in our dreams, but we see in our great works of literature, whether they be religious works of literature or fiction. And these archetypal symbols correlate or have correlation to these archetypal events in people's lives. So in a sort of Jungian sense, there is been throughout human history a way of storing or commemorizing the significant archetypal events that happen in people's lives through symbol and through story. So for young, there are these symbols, these common symbols that may show up in dreams, religion, and fiction, which for a guy like young is all part of this dreams and fiction and religion are all sort of accessing this collective unconscious. And just so you know, like a lot of you guys jumped into this, my podcast early on when I did a series on Jordan Peterson, and maybe you've stuck around for some of the other stuff. But those of you that are really into Jordan Peterson stuff, again, you need to know that Jordan Peterson is a major Jungian disciple. And so when you hear Peterson go through his like Maps of Meaning series, uh, he, he he's he's taking from this Jungian ideology, okay? Hopefully that helps you make sense. So make sense of this. So we have archetypal symbols that are just ways that the, the unconscious mind can categorize these massive life events. And over the course of millennia or even millions of years, there have been these symbols that now we have stored, we can... I guess, helps us retrieve these sorts of important life events, or they have symbolic connection to these important life events. So for Jung, some of these key symbols that you would see in, you know, religious literature, in fictional literature, and even in our dreams are figures like 
mother and father symbols, dragons, uh, symbols of God and the devil, you know, heroes and tricksters, etc. So this is sort of the Jungian school of thought, and our dreams then are a way that our mind is somehow tapping into some sort of, again, collective unconscious mind. And so for both Freud and Jung, they were really interested with dream interpretation and what's happening there. There there are, though, many scientists who are maybe more uncomfortable with either of these explanations and, and argue that they lack enough empirical scientific study. It's, again, really only been over the last 40 to 50 years that we've been able to study more of the, the neurological side of dream science. So some of the evidence from these studies that's emerged over the last four to five decades seems to suggest that dreams serve important neurological, biological functions in the human body. Uh, some of the proposed theories from this research are that, first of all, dreams serve as memory organization and reorganization in the deep subconscious or unconscious, we could call them maybe file folders of our brain. So what happens when we dream is that our these deep, deep processes in our subconscious and unconscious state are essentially transferring files. If you want to think of our our brain as a computer, some of the evidence from this research seems to point to that our brain functioning like a computer while we sleep does this sort of file transferring, maybe similar to what you might do when you back up your hard drive, which is a good reminder, I need to back up my hard drive on this very computer. So when you back up your hard drive, you're transferring perhaps critical files that you don't need um, right now. Perhaps you want to have access to them later. So you might just have a hard drive backup in case the whole computer crashes. But you might, you know, your hard drive might get full and you might get your, you know, 750 gig limit and you realize I don't need all of these files and so some of the dream science points to a, a brain doing a similar process that we need to have access in our daily lives to short-term memory things, things that are important for our daily survival and function, and that what we might not need as much access to in our day-to-day -day lives are these sort of sort of long-term memories, these things from our, our childhood. You know, what might be more relevant for you is the skills that you learned on your recent job training versus your, you know, your ability to build a fort out of your bedroom blankets and sheets that, you know, you might have worked on really, really hard when you were a kid. And so, Perhaps what happens again in our dreams and in the dreaming and sleep process is that these this file transferring happens. We're moving the long-term memory files out of the way to make room for short-term memory. Uh, some of the other evidence also points to the possibility that our well, not just the possibility. This is a pretty much established fact. We can we can falsifiably demonstrate this. 
is that our, our dreaming seems to originate. It originates seemingly from the, the back of our brains, our amygdala, all right? So what some people call the, the ancient brain, right? This is the, the animal instinct part of our brain. And as our, our, our prefrontal cortex, which is the primary control center of our conscious choices like processing information and images, which is located right behind your forehead, that shuts down, or maybe we could say enters into sleep mode, um, pun intended really, it enters into sleep mode while you sleep. And so the primary processing center, your prefrontal cortex, shuts down, enters into sleep mode, but your amygdala is very, very active during this time. This is the, the fight or flight center of the brain. We'll come back and explore that again in just a moment. But there are other places of the brain that also kind of slow down or shut down. And another place is the orbital frontal cortex. So if your prefrontal cortex, if you take your finger even right now, take your index finger or middle finger, and just kind of tap the center of your forehead, right behind there is your prefrontal cortex. Again, that's like control center number one. Uh, that's the place where you, uh, you know, the interpretation of all your external stimuli that go into you making a conscious choice and processing information and doing math and speaking and making sense of the world around you all goes through that. It's also the filter by which we regulate our behavior too. So our, our prefrontal cortex, again, Take your finger, tap the center of your forehead, you know, right behind there is your prefrontal cortex, which is also really important for regulating behavior. And we know this because animals have a very small, limited prefrontal cortex, and they operate much more instinctively. So they see food, they want to eat food. You have to process whether or not that food is healthy for you. You want to develop your prefrontal cortex in a way so that you can make choices that are in alignment with your values, right? It's the same thing with um, like sexual appetites, right? Animals have um, don't necessarily have a, a moral structure. And so when we're processing whether or not when we feel like sexual stimuli to act on that, it goes through our prefrontal cortex, which helps us make hopefully wise choices, right? The orbital frontal cortex, so if your finger right now, if you're still for some reason holding or touching the center of your forehead, if you slide your fingers down ever so slightly to where your eyes are, the orbital frontal cortex is located essentially right behind your eyes. And this is the part of the brain that's our fact checker, all right? So it's part of our, our, our frontal cortex. It's a specific region of it, and it's our fact-checking center of our brain. So interestingly enough, that part essentially shuts down or goes into sleep mode when we are sleeping and, and dreaming. So this is why dreams can be so peculiar and we, we can't process them as we're experiencing them in a coherent, logical manner is because we literally, we don't have access to the systems of our brain that give us the ability to do so. Interestingly enough, it's also perhaps similar experience to when someone is experiencing a panic attack or an anxiety attack, what we could say in those situations is that their amygdala has hijacked their brain. So if you're ever working with someone that has uh, or interacting with somebody that's 
in the middle of an anxiety attack and you attempt to reason with them, you attempt to help them engage that that prefrontal cortex, you'll you'll find that they just can't do it. It doesn't help. It, it, it doesn't help them get out of that panic attack. They're flooded. Their amygdala has hijacked control, and now they're in fight or flight response. And so, similar thing, the orbital frontal cortex, the fact checker part of the brain also shuts down. So, this is why people that are, again, having that amygdala hijacked in various ways, whether it's through stress, whether it's through anxiety, they just, they physically can't process the information. And it's a similar thing that happens in our brain when we sleep. So essentially what we have happen is that the part of our brain, again, that's the fight or flight center, lights up when we get into our REM cycle. That's the rapid eye movement cycle of our brain. And if you actually watch people while they sleep, which would be a really weird thing to do, but if you watch somebody while they sleep and they entered into that REM cycle, you'd probably be able to see under their eyelids, their eyes moving very, very quickly side to side, back and forth. And, and, and that's where we get into our dream state of sleep. So while we're in our REM cycle, other centers of our brain shut down, or again, maybe a better way of putting it, so you don't think we go brain dead, is that it really, they enter into sleep mode. One of the suggestions uh, about this process, this mechanical process in our brain and why that happens, and why is the amygdala heightened, other systems shut down, even uh, again, while we're in REM, we're in REM sleep. We um, again, for most people, this isn't the case for everybody. There are some sort of there are sleep disorders out there which change this. But when you're in a REM cycle, you also usually lose the ability of you know making your limbs function. That's why when you're in sleep and you're you're fighting ninjas or you're I used to always get a uh, get dreams about web slinging like I was Spider Man. Well. You don't end up out of your bed. Hopefully, you don't, you know, punch your spouse who's sleeping next to you when you're fighting ninjas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in some cases, that system doesn't work the way it should, and that's why people sleepwalk or where they they might, um, you know, physically like punch or throw kicks or stuff while they're sleeping, and that's that's actually a breakdown of the the sleeping mechanism. It's a it's a sleep disorder, but normally those systems shut down. So if the amygdala is in control, by and large part is in control, the other systems shut down, scientists have wondered whether or not that perhaps maybe dreaming is a way of our body's way of preparing us for future dangers we may experience in real life. We could maybe call this a, a sort of fight or flight simulation machine, which provides for us an evolutionary advantage of helping us survive in real fight or flight situations that we haven't encountered. So it may be uh, useful to us. And maybe that's why, you know, again, speaking purely from uh, a, a naturalistic perspective, people have suggested, well, perhaps dreams, the dream state in this process has evolved because it is beneficial for humans and it is doing something. We actually see stress hormone released when, when people enter into REM cycle. Amygdala is heightened, heightened activity in the amygdala, the shutting down of other systems. That it does give a lot of indication that perhaps dreams do prepare us for situations of fight or flight that we haven't yet experienced in real life, 
or sometimes maybe we have, and it's preparing us to adequately deal with those situations. So all of this work of memory organization or fight or flight preparation that happens deep in our subconscious, what what is that doing to actually create dreams? Okay, so this is really interesting. So we I think we can feel fairly certain from from the empirical scientific research that this memory organization, this moving around of files in the hard drive is happening. We also can say with a high degree of certainty that this sort of fight or flight preparation is happening deep, deep, deep in our subconscious. How does that make dreams? Well, there's electrical, we could maybe call this electrical noise that's generated in our unconscious, deep in the subconscious parts, our unconscious brain. This electrical noise is like the noise that these processes are happening in our brain, the file relocation of memory organization, the fight or flight preparation. But that noise, those signals don't just disappear into nowhere. They actually get picked up by the what we might call our conscious brain. And our conscious brain, though it is sleeping and it's not in its normal state, it still has the ability in a limited sense to take these signals and impulses. And what it does is just part of its normal process is it tries to turn those signals and impulses into images and stories because that's the way our conscious brain works. We are storied creatures. We are meaning-making machines. And so that part may not totally shut off. And so what that does is translate the translation of those impulses and signals of the memory file, the file system relocation, the fight or flight preparation gets translated into images and stories in our conscious mind that we call a dream. Okay, so we've done some biblical exploration of prophetic dreams. We've talked a little bit. We've talked a bit about the science behind dreams. What about prophetic dreams? If you are a Christian and you accept the inspiration of Scripture and you accept that part of the inspiration of Scripture includes these prophetic dream stories where God has communicated to people through dreams— And you may even have anecdotal experience, like I have, where dreams that you've had about future events or insights into people's situations are actually true. They come to pass. You might be wondering, how does that work? What's actually happening? What are prophetic dreams? What's happening here? I think what prophetic dreams point to is that we are actually somehow our consciousness, the physical hard drive of our brain may have internet access. We might have access to the cloud, to something like Google Drive or Dropbox, that that we are somehow beings that part of our very nature and the way that God has designed us And the way that God has designed consciousness, the very nature of our consciousness may not just be local to the machine of our mind, but that we are in fact accessing something that maybe maybe Jung was 
partially correct in 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 his own exploration, thinking that there was there was this sort of collective consciousness, this collective unconscious that we were somehow accessing that wasn't just limited to our own, you know, our the our own files in our own localized brain, but maybe we were tapping into something more. And actually, there is a Christian tradition that affirms this. Traditionally, Christians have looked at the examples of prophetic dreams in the Bible and deduced that that God somehow implants within or interacts with the dreamer to communicate with them, which is how they would have knowledge about things that only God would know. So again, think back to perhaps the example of Jacob's ladder and this image of messengers ascending and descending up and down this ladder. That Christians have historically affirmed this is somehow a, a picture of how God may communicate with people via dreams, that there is a connection, perhaps a ladder between the dreamer and God, and that there are messages that are somehow implanted or interacted within our own conscious states or even subconscious, unconscious activity of our mind to produce a message that we are intended to receive from God. So let's explore, though, a little bit of a, a bit of a theological and philosophical theory about the very nature of our consciousness, which might help us understand a bit of how prophetic dreams work. On this subject, I, I, I really enjoy the work of David Bentley Hart, the, the philosopher, the Eastern Orthodox Christian philosopher, who has some just remarkable insights into the, the nature of consciousness and affirming how it is not able to be reduced simply to physical properties and affirming that within a, a larger Christian view, especially in a sort of Thomistic, that is uh, Thomas Aquinas in the tradition of uh, Thomas Aquinas in understanding the nature of God and reality. So ben David Bentley Hart, his work on this stuff is, is just tremendous. Hart suggests that the nature of our consciousness is that we, in a finite way, participate in an infinite act of divine consciousness, in that the divine consciousness, the, 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 the reality, the ultimate reality of the triune God is the basic constitution of reality. And so all of reality, the necessary reality, and that you could even go back to, you know, I've explained some of the stuff in some of my short YouTube videos, which I do plan on coming back to finishing up that six-part short video series on the ultimate meaning-making questions that humans have wrestled with. But in the first one, we talk about what ultimate reality is. And for a guy like David Bentley Hart, which is, this is very much in the Thomistic Christian tradition, that uh, the, the triune God is the necessary being. It is He is not a being, but he is being itself, by which all other beings derive their being from. This has to do with all of reality itself, not just humans but that all of reality is derived from the ultimate reality, which is the triune God. So for David Bentley Hart, consciousness, our individual experience of consciousness, is a finite participation in God's consciousness. 
So in some way, we could think of it like our localized computer connected to the infinite internet of God's consciousness. And what is God's consciousness? God, we could say divine consciousness is God's experiential knowledge of himself and all of creation. All right, so if consciousness is, in fact, a finite participation in God's knowledge of himself and all of creation, then we could say that our finite experience, our local experience of consciousness as individual people isn't limited to the contents of our local machine, our local mind. But as David Bentley Hart puts it, we are finite participants in an act which far exceeds our finite identity. I think this might give us some sort of insight and possible clue into the very nature of what happens in prophetic dreams. That somehow, in some way, our finite act of participation, consciousness, our very consciousness itself, is derived from divine consciousness. It's derived from God's very being. We are participants in God's knowledge of himself. This is the this is the constitution of reality. But our participation is limited, right? It's limited because we are finite beings. Christians also would affirm our our participation in God's knowledge of himself and all of creation is limited because we are marred by the presence of sin. And creation itself, the information that we process in creation, creation itself is, though fundamentally good, is also marred by the presence of sin. And this this marring uh, limits limits us beyond what our natural limitations would be as finite beings. It, in fact, distorts our knowledge of God's consciousness. It distorts it, in fact, gives us wrong pictures it leads us into ways of seeing the world that aren't in alignment with reality as it actually is. So these are a couple of the reasons why we would say it's finite participation and it's imperfect participation. Part of this like rich Christian tradition that um, you know we could be really, really thankful for, especially in the Eastern Church, is this understanding of theosis or sanctification as a process of salvation by which we begin to see reality, God, and ourselves in a greater alignment with the way it actually is. We begin to experience a more complete and more full picture of God's knowledge of himself and the rest of creation. And so we are in the sanctification process, right? This process of theosis, of greater union with God for those who participate in union with God through Christ. So what may be happening in prophetic dreams is a momentary state of greater clarity in our consciousness of God's knowledge of himself and creation. Now, what activates this is a mystery to me. This is part of the puzzle that I'm I'm still exploring. And as you can probably pick up, one of the reoccurring themes over many of the last few episodes and conversations I've been having with people is 
is trying to understand the relation again between our knowledge of God and transcendent experiences, experiences that seem to go beyond the activities of normal activities of our prefrontal cortex and our experiences of God in the imminent, where we are much more engaged in those sorts of conscious, um, intentionally conscious, not conscious as in consciousness, but intentionally conscious activity centers of our brain. And this gets me thinking about, again, many of the conversations I've had over the last few months with people, whether it's been with Adam Russell on the Ferment podcast and talking about my own sort of spiritual journey growing up in a very charismatic tradition, or my conversation with Dr. Clay Rutledge about the difference between, uh, you know, what intuitive thinking is versus rational thinking. And it, it, it has made me think quite a bit more about that sort of idea that I had heard so frequently as a kid that you got to, you know, you got to check your head at the door if you want to have a transcendent experience of God that, um, you know, even as was kind of like spontaneously thrust into a uh, Bethel worship song, this line from a, a David Gray tune, like, let go of your heart, let go of your head and, and feel him now. Uh, that there was perhaps this sort of intuitive feeling in those traditions that in order to access, to have greater clarity to accessing God's thoughts, though people know, never described it like this, that we had to somehow like shut down those systems of, of rational thought. We had to almost get closer to a dream state than a state by which we would do math or science in our cognitive processes. And even I was thinking recently, I was talking to my wife about you know, a conversation. I used to have pretty reoccurring conversation with some friends back when we were younger, lamenting how it seemed like there were churches out there that either did worship really, really well, or they had really, really good preaching, sound, exegetical preaching. But it was really hard or difficult to find a place that did both for some reason. And I know this isn't the case, then that's totally what's good in either one of those categories, whether it comes to musical worship or to um, preaching what people consider good is a very, very subjective process. And I know that there are churches out there that, that, that do place a high value on both of those things. But I've wondered, as I've been reflecting on these things and thinking about dreams, whether or not there is something to what happens in our dream state, what happens in that deep REM cycle, what happens when this sort of unconscious part of our brain comes alive and these other control centers seem to slow down or shut down their processes. Why is it that in my own life, some of the most clear communication from God or again, what at least I attribute to God, some of the most impactful and powerful spiritual phenomenon in my life have happened in that sort of state. So if you were looking for a total and complete explanation of what definitively happens and why prophetic dreams happen, I know I haven't given you that, but I hope this explanation, or at least I should maybe say instead of explanation, this exploration has has been helpful in some way. 
I want to close today with this story that I was thinking about it as I was preparing for this, a story that I I don't think I will ever forget. It's a very simple scene from my life, but I've carried it with me for quite some time. Years ago, I was at a student assembly chapel. Um, can't remember if I was leading worship for it or whether I was there teaching or or preaching. I can't remember the context for it. And they opened up at the end of this assembly a, a time for kids, and this was elementary age all the way through high school, to to share from their experiences at the uh, you know the week of assemblies and what sorts of impacts they believe God had made on their life. And this elementary student got up, and I, I don't remember the boy had to have been couldn't have been older than than fifth grade and. It was pretty amazing. Most of the sharing came from older kids, but it was this this boy got up and shared something just so innocent and yet so profound. I've carried it with me the rest of my life. This was quite some time ago. This boy's testimony was how during this week he had been dreaming more, dreaming at night and been having these great dreams, dreams that he felt God was speaking to him in. And he shared this with just such innocence and humility. Uh, you could tell it was really the genuine thing. He was really being transformed and impacted by these experiences that he felt were from God in his dreams. And he he wrapped up his testimony by saying this, and it's always stood out to me. His like takeaway from it as a probably third, fourth, or fifth grade boy was. God loves me so much, he even tries to talk to me when I'm sleeping. Well, I'd love to hear from some of you guys that have had experiences with these sorts of prophetic dreams. I'd love to hear stories from you. Would you reach out to me on Twitter or even Instagram? Or you can leave a comment uh, if you guys are listening on, if you use the Podbean app, you can put it right here in the comment section. Or even if you were to do an iTunes review, or iTunes, I guess it's no longer iTunes anymore, an Apple Music review and had a question there. Uh, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from some of you that have also had these sorts of peculiar experiences in your life with dreams and prophetic dreams happening and how you've interpreted them. And I'd love to even hear some some stories about those sorts of those sorts of dreams. Uh, I hope this sort of conversation has been helpful. I hope it helps you kind of make sense of your experiences and to not dismiss them as uh, every single one of them being some sort of fake you know, experience that was the result of eating too much pizza right before bed. I hope it also helps you see and process that I think scientifically we can say that there are things that are happening in our dreams that that don't necessarily have to have like some sort of prophetic element to it, that they don't have to have some sort of prophetic explanation for, that they may just be our, our minds preparing us for important fight, flight situations or doing the important work of memory retrieval and long-term memory storage to make room for more short-term memory availability in our brains that hopefully a holistic view of revelation and uh, reason allows us to make room for the possibility yeah that god does love us enough to try to even even to speak to us in our dreams and yet not all of our dreams are direct divine communications that we are our consciousness is participating in 
God's knowledge of himself and creation, and that some of that might be limited, and it's certainly marred, but there's also opportunity for us to have greater access to the contents of God's knowledge, to know him and to know creation better. So I hope you enjoy and you're on that journey as I am together. Till next time.